Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's the Heads and Tails podcast. We're coming at you with episode three. And this is a doozy, Warren. This is a this is a show that I wanted to do for a while, even before we actually officially started doing the show. Yes, I think maybe it was the kick in the butt, to be honest with you. Oh, um, that I needed to kind of get the show off the ground. It wasn't wanting to spend more time with me. That would no. That was the reason why it took so long because oh, you're, okay. you you were going to be here. Yes. Because I am me, and I am here. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, today we're we're talking to Brian Davis, who's the co-founder and inventor over at Lost Spirits. Now, I first heard about Lost Spirits from, uh, well, actually, I forget the actual article, but uh, I was Googling it, and there's one, uh, a Wired Magazine article. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called One Man's Quest to Make 20-Year-Old Rum in Just Six Days. And I'm like, <laughs> who is this dude? Yeah. And I read the thing, and I'm like, wow, this is actually... This is this is gonna be really amazing. Yeah, I remember you forwarding it to me and say, "Get these people on." Yeah, let's do this right now. And you're like, yeah. "On what?" And I'm like, "The the thing. <laughs> I don't know. The whatever." Remember the thing that we're doing now? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we have Brian on the line here. We're gonna bring him up here in just a second. But I do want to thank our title sponsor, Pico Brew, and their Pico Still. So if you want to make a little small batch of distillate at home uh, for herbal usage or you know uh, water, if you want small right. amounts of distilled water. Yeah, um, or whatever. We're dancing around the real topic here, right. but uh, the Pico whatever still. you want to do with it, exactly in the privacy of your own house. Yes, you can distill pilot batches of spirits safely and more precisely uh, with the Pico Still. So head over to picobrew.com, hit the drop down menu under products, and start getting creative, man. It's uh, it's really cool. I can't wait to get my hands on one of these guys. I think we're gonna get one next month. Yeah, they're coming out soon. Coming out soon. I'm 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 really quite pumped about it so uh uh there's an indirect heat under a vacuum and a first cut collection chamber there's a whole there's a whole oh, yeah. thing it makes it real easy to be honest i don't even know what a lot of that is but i'm really excited about it <laughs> it's do, it's gonna do it for you so you don't have to know <laughs> that's true i appreciate that i appreciate other things knowing things that i don't need to know perfect that's why i'm so excited about ai and like <laughs> skynet coming online i'm ex- just that's fine just as long as we don't teach them how to shoot a gun you know the things that i don't know so you want to know how to do that I, mean, I know how to do that, oh, but I don't okay. want them to know because those would be too. Uh... Does AI have hands? Sure. Is that a thing? Sure. Oh, okay. Why not? Have you seen Lawnmower Man? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. You're right. You're Thank right. Thank you. Uh, anyway, on the line right now, joining us live, we have Brian Davis over at Lost Spirits. Brian, are you with me? Yeah. How's it going? Good, man. How are you doing? Ah, alive and kicking. We're a little tired. We're uh, we're building on another story right now. Oh wow! And uh, it's a lot of work. Construction, <laughs> any kind of construction is uh, even paper mache tired me out as a kid. So I can't imagine that doing actual building work would. Um... <laughs> well, we we do that with everything. So it's uh, it's always the the core team, and we jump in and just like do all the construction, and nice. we enjoy it. But you know, there's a point in the middle. Or it's just like, oh, I want this to be over. The the middle slog through. Yeah, man. No, yeah, exactly right. Because then there's no endpoint in sight. You just need to get it done. And it's a whole, it's a whole thing. Um, so I, I got to say, you guys are, are super interesting. And I might have to be jumping around in your timeline and your story and all that kind of stuff. Because I think what you're doing is unlike anything I've ever heard of in the 
spirits world and uh there's two sides i think the distillation uh that's going on and then your like tasting room and the environment you guys are trying to set up so i definitely want to cover those and we have a lovely spirit uh to be drinking in the second half of the show warren what is it again uh abomination black label it's a heavy heavily (laughs) peated uh, malt wow it's uh it's one of the uh the whiskeys that we bought in isla and then imported into the United States, and then did all kinds of immoral things to it. <laughs> yeah, it does say uh, spirit imported from the ILA, basically what uh, Brian just said. Matured in California in that infamous laboratory of Brian Davis. Wow. Little hang tag. <laughs> all right, Brian. Well, let's uh, let's start getting into Lost Spirits and uh, how it came about. What is your background with uh, distillation? Yeah, so it's a long story. So originally, uh, when, uh, let's see. So I started distilling actually when I was in high school, um, just wow. as a hobby and, uh, and as a way of getting booze for high school without having to have an ID that said I was 21. Well, and I, I and, like that. Uh, because, sorry, I'm going to interrupt. See, this is what I do. Most people would just buy, like, shoulder tap for beer. Uh, and then some people, <laughs> uh, the industrious of us, would, would brew beer, but you just went straight for the spirit. Yeah, you know, I've never been a major beer drinker, strangely enough. Okay. Um, it's never really, like, both beer and wine have never really been my thing. And uh, and so even when I was a kid in high school, you know, I was drinking garbage like kids in high school do. Yeah. But it was, uh, but it was still, you know, spirits in general. And that's okay. always kind of been my jam. And so uh, I just, you know, kind of went online and looked up on the Internet, how do you, uh, how do you distill rum? Right. And, uh, and that was how I started making booze. Um, okay, fair enough, man. In your closet? That, you know, how did you... It a, a rare once in a while. Like, this wasn't a, uh, a, you know, anything I was trying to make a career out of or a location. Okay. It, it was just sort of something for fun and, and hobbyist and, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, and then I got to college, and a buddy had um, a GK magazine in the bathroom. And in the back of the magazine, it had a, uh, a an article in it. It was outlining that Europe had just um, allowed absence to be sold again. Okay. And so I saw this article and I thought, ooh, this is really cool. And then I went online and I'm reading about them, and generally the consensus was that what people were selling at that time when they had first legalized it in Europe in the 90s was, uh, it was a mix of uh, vodka, green food coloring, and you know a little bit of wormwood for flavor kind of thing. <laughs> and I thought, well, that sucks. I want the actual thing that you know, Van Gogh was drinking when he cut his ear off. Yeah. Because I, I need that in my life. Yeah. Right. You have two ears. Yeah. <laughs> I have one too many ears. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, you know, built another still and, you know, went, okay, let's, uh, let's go see what, what it takes to make the stuff and looked up old 19th century recipes. And, uh, and then produced an absence for fun. And I used to take it with me every year to, uh, it's like Burning Man and use it as bribery material to get on cool art cars. <laughs> so, you know, and again, very much a hop. Nothing I was intending to make into a business or a career. Right. And uh, and years later, um, I was designing amusement park rides for a living. And uh, and my girlfriend slash business partner um, got into a pretty nasty car accident where she wiped out her car. Now, she walked out of it without a scratch, which okay. was a bit of a miracle. But she completely obliterated this car, just, you know, destroyed the thing. And, you know, you kind of look at the car and it's like, she'll die. Right. Uh, kudos to Toyota for great engineering. I'll, I'll give them the plug. <laughs> um, but she walked out of it with all the scratch. 
And, uh, and she kind of just looked at me and went, you know, life is too short. Let's go do something crazy. And, uh, and let's go start our own business. And, yeah. and then we sort of sat down and went, okay, well, well what are we going to do? <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, and kind of looked at the bottles of absinthe. And at that time, they were starting to um, try to promote uh, bottles of better stuff to the U.S. market. Because some of the companies already have been selling to see that there was going Sorry, we're we're losing mm-hmm. you a little bit there. I, I lost that last little bit of what you said. Oh, sorry. The, right. uh, my reception in this building is terrible. Yeah. Um, the uh, they, yeah, they were starting to market the stuff to people in the U.S. as target consumers. Okay, and they, and we were kind of on their mailing list, and we were looking at this going like, well, you know. They seem to be able to make a business out of like you know manufacturing absinthe, sending it to the U.S. and yeah. unmarked boxes. Right. Um, there you go. We could do that. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and, uh, so we moved to uh, to Barcelona and uh, set up shop in a town called Gaeta in the Pyrenees Mountains, about an hour by high speed rail outside of Barcelona, and uh, and built an absinthe distillery there. And then started exporting it to the U.S. and that because the U.S. legalized it right after we set up the shop. Right. So and, uh, <laughs> and we basically, uh, you know, got stupidly lucky. Did you, did you go <laughs> right. to? Did, were you, did you move to Spain because you just you like that part of the world? Because I mean, I think you could set up an absinthe distillery anywhere except except the U.S. Of course. Yeah, and I mean, we could have done it anywhere, but there were traditionally three styles that were produced throughout history. And there was a there was a French style, a Swiss style, and a Spanish style. Hmm. And at that time, um, there weren't very many people making this stuff, and they had recreated the French stuff, and they had recreated the Swiss stuff, but nobody had recreated the Spanish stuff. Okay. Hmm. And so we thought, okay, well, let's go move to Spain, and we'll be the, uh, the first people to recreate Spanish absinthe. Right. Uh, you know, kind of lost to history. And figured that'd be a really cool, uh, you know, neat thing to do. Plus, I mean, Barcelona's fantastic. Uh, you know, great coffee, cool architecture. You know, just sort of made sense. What's kind of? I mean, the, yeah, we were too. Oops, sorry. Oh, I was gonna say, what's kind of the main difference between Spanish and the other two absents? So it's in the coloring steps. So the Swiss um, is actually bottled as a clear distillate off the still. The uh, the French is colored using um, hyssop flowers and uh, what's it called? Um, well, primarily hyssop flowers, and then the Spanish stuff is colored using lemon balm. And so you get a uh, less vegetal, more citrusy component out of the Spanish stuff than you do out of the French. Okay. Is it also a bit uh, more yellow instead of green, it, I guess? No, I mean, it's, oh. it's sort of an, it's a, a, yellow, a slightly yellowish green, um, uh, but it's still very much green. Uh, I mean, it comes off of still sort of radioactive green from the chlorophyll, <laughs> and then okay. slowly fades to like a yellow green over time as it sits in the bottle. Mm. Um. But yeah, so uh, so that was kind of step one, and uh, you know, fairly psychotic. <laughs> I mean, I got to switch to a different building, so I got better reception. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah, I mean that sounds uh, that sounds yeah. that sounds crazy. Uh, you know, what did your family think that? Oh, hey, um, I'm going to move to Spain and uh, and recreate absinthe, and that's going to be my 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 job, everybody. So hold my mail. <laughs> like, is no, that? They were actually pretty, they were they were quite supportive. Okay, good. Um, that's I, good. I mean, I think they kind of looked at it and they thought, you know, ah, eh, they're in their twenties. 
hey, it's something crazy to go through. They'll get it out of their system. Well, and they, and they were okay with you making making spirits in high school, right? Well, no, they had no idea when I was talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> when did you tell them? When did you tell them that you were making spirits in high school? Oh, I think they saw it in my TED talk. Uh, okay, how's the reception now? Fine, I think it's good. Okay, hopefully we'll cool. see. I okay. mean, it's probably our it's probably our end too. Skype is never really the most reliable, you know, source, but it sounds good, so we got to go with it. Okay. okay. All right, so you're uh, in Spain. Yeah, so, you're making uh, absence. So I was sort of adventure one, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, uh, and it was really really nuts. I mean, we didn't speak Spanish. Um, <laughs> we were 25 and 27. Uh, you know, it was a crazy psychotic. Thing and we didn't understand how to run a business. We didn't understand, uh, you know. I mean, there's so many things we didn't understand. Yeah, was it a legal <laughs> business if you weren't able to communicate with anybody? Oh, in, you know, I mean, we, uh, we hired lawyers and got the distillery built and licensed. And I mean, I have my own giant, long, crazy set of stories from uh, from living in Spain and from building a business there, and you know, dealing with all of the crazy government regulatory stuff. That's, I bet. Uh, wow. That's all. You know, different but equally weird uh, as our stuff is here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, now we set up a legal distillery there, and uh, and we started. Uh, we, well, we really should have been bankrupt uh, within <laughs> probably like two months. Okay. But uh, <laughs> but the U.S. government, having legalized the stuff, uh, kind of right on cue for us, created an opportunity for us to start selling product back to the United States. And because we were Americans and we understood the culture here. Uh, we actually got a bit of a head start on a lot of the other people that would enter the U.S. market over the next several years. And uh, and we kind of learned our way through how to run a business and uh, ended up number four in the world market. So, wow. you know, that was cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and a crazy adventure. And, uh, and so we did that until 2009. Okay. And then in 2009, the uh, absence market decided that it wasn't going to be a thing anymore. Oh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it kind of made sense. In hindsight, of course, it makes perfect sense. But mm-hmm. you know, it's just one of those things where, from 2006 to 2009, stuff had just become legal, and consumers were going like, "Wow, what is this? It's what Van Gogh drank when he cut his ear off. Let's go try it. This will be a really fun adventure." They you know invite all their friends over, everybody wear top hats and uh, you know and peacock feathers. <laughs> and, and sort of throw an absence thinking house party. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it really kind of had a, a brief, you know, burst of life. And then, you know, three years go by, everybody's going up, been there, done that, what are we going to do for the next cool house party? Right. And uh, and at some point, they just got, go back to drinking whiskey and rum and brandy and, <laughs> you know, whatever they drink. And all the before. other stuff. Yeah, I, uh, I feel like absinthe, absinthe is, is, is cool. 95% of the people are intrigued by the by the taste and that they do it. But then I think most of those people are disappointed that they don't cut their ear off or don't hallucinate or, or <laughs> all the things that absinthe supposedly makes you do. And then you're like, oh, I thought I was going to come out of here with one ear. Um, uh. And so they're disappointed. And, and so, so they, won't, disappointed. they won't continue to drink it. That's Yeah. Well, oh, okay. I, th- I, think it's, I think it's most people, well, not most, I shouldn't say most. There are a, a certain section of people who are attracted to absinthe purely based on these fantastical tales of you know, uh, you oh you hallucinate, don't you know, don't you know that, bro? <laughs> um, and then you know, and yeah. then it doesn't happen, and then okay. they go, huh? Now I have all these peacock feathers, yep. and then there you go, okay. <laughs> and this top hat. Yeah, and that's really true. Uh, I mean, I think there was definitely a um, 
uh, an overall like uh, you know it had been really hyped over the course of centuries into something it wasn't. Yeah. Um, as a fun footnote to that, if you really want a, a little interesting tidbit out of history, the uh, the stories of people hallucinating and ending up in mental hospitals and stuff drinking absinthe are actually true. The, uh, the there was a thirty percent increase in mental health cases in France during the absinthe boom at that time. Mm, wow. And uh, and what happened. Uh, which this is actually how it got legalized in Europe, was a, a woman who was writing her graduate thesis on uh, the history of absinthe. And she went digging around in old French landfills and found bottles from the 19th century wow. and, uh, and scraped the residue from the bottom of the bottles and then had it chemically analyzed. And, uh, and what was really interesting about it is that the cheap stuff that they were selling at that time was colored with food coloring. Very much like the cheap, or well, at least it should be cheap stuff that they make today sometimes is, uh, is artificially colored that way. Mm-hmm. And what they would use for food coloring in the 19th century in France was called Paris Green. It was a green dye that was made from chromium and copper sulfate. Wow. And uh, okay. And so if you were drinking the cheap stuff, you would actually get heavy metal poisoning. Yeah. And the uh, and the you know the advanced symptoms of heavy metal poisoning are people you know going crazy, hallucinating, and ending up in a mental hospital. <laughs> um, and that's sort of where the lore comes from. Okay. Uh, but. But somehow, over the time of history, it got changed from, you know, drinking bad stuff with toxic food coloring, go crazy, to, uh, you know, you're a trip. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Never, never drink the cheap stuff. This should be a rule for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that was, uh, that was kind of the story of absence and the story of our, uh, okay. uh, our four-year adventure in that world. Um Nice. And, uh, and so at the end of it, you know, we sold off the distillery. Um, I used to make a gin uh, that was called Port of Dragons that's, uh, that's still fairly popular in Barcelona. And, uh, and so the local guys wanted the gin brand. Um, and, uh, and so they bought the distillery from me in order to get the gin brand. Wow. And, cool. uh, and I moved back to the U.S. And Joanne moved back to the U.S. And we thought, wow, okay. Well, what are we going to do now? Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Like, uh, like we're back home. Uh, we had about, uh, I think, maybe seventy or so thousand dollars uh, of total uh, cash um, yeah. after selling off the distillery, and uh, which isn't enough to do anything really, other than you know, go, I don't know, Buy a lot take a trip apple. around the world or something. Right. So, but you're not going to go build a new distillery on seventy thousand bucks. No. no. Can't even get a Tesla on seventy thousand bucks. <laughs> not even a used Tesla on seventy thousand. <laughs> Right. And uh, and so we came back and we thought, well, you know, we've got all these, you know, distributors all over the world and all these bars and everybody knows us. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like we're probably, you know, going to be in the beverage industry now. Um, So what do we do and and what's what's cool and interesting? You know, what what can you do that's neat and relevant and has a reason for being in in 2010 uh, versus 2006? And, uh, and so we ended up uh, bouncing around for a little while uh, looking for good ideas. And we finally settled in on uh, uh, Joanne's family had this piece of property in a town called Castroville, uh, which is a um, it's an artichoke growing community. And that's basically all it is. Okay. So, uh, you know, four or five thousand residents and, you know, several million artichokes. Nice. The good and, uh, and so <laughs> there's a little piece of patch of farmland that was a couple acres in the middle of the artichoke fields and they you know said hey if you guys want to build a distillery here you know, go for it and we thought well there's no way the city's going to let us sort of so we called the county of monterey and monterey county said yeah sure you can put a distillery there and we thought wow okay 
There you go. Well, now, how, how in the world are we going to build a distillery for for seventy thousand bucks? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, and so we ended. And you know, and the thing is, we weren't trying to build a big business. Like that wasn't the. Uh, we were sort of done with that. You know, this was our let's go retire and you know rot out somewhere. And uh, and just sort of have a, a monk-like existence making booze. Right. So you just yeah, kind of was, wanted something to sustain on, not really make waves. No, you didn't have the intention to do anything like that. You just wanted to distill some stuff and and kind of just hang out. Yeah. I mean, I we like were basically that. sitting there. You know, it really all stemmed from this conversation where we were saying, you know, okay, you're going to build a distillery. Um, what would the coolest distillery in the world be? What would where should alcohol really come from? What is the place where where you'd want to go and where you'd expect this stuff to come from? Like, what's the perfect distillery? You know, and we sat there mm-hmm. kind of around a, a coffee table, bouncing ideas back and forth. And we finally settled in on the um, the Temple of Inari in Japan. Okay. Um, so the uh, the Temple of Inari, which if you've never seen it, by the way, Google it. It's really cool. Uh, it's this um, Inari is the goddess of sake. Um, she's uh, she's actually a hot fox, um, nice. and, uh, and they have a fox festival. I'm all into it. Dress up as foxes. I'm and into it. All right. An actual uh, fox or a hot chick? Well, she's like a like a hot chick with a fox head. No. Oh. See, I've watched enough anime to be interested in, in this, so oh. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. So she's a furry. <laughs> yeah. But so she has this temple, and the temple is a uh, it's a mountain. And all the way up the mountain, it has uh, like, um, tories, which are the Japanese like gates to the to the sacred world or whatever. Okay, uh, you know, stacked in front of each other like a foot apart, and it spirals its way all the way up to the top of the mountain where the temple is. And, and it was like, okay, I want to drink the booze that the monks that live at the top of this temple make. Uh, you know, and to me, the monks they, you know, every day they they've got a, a bamboo rod and they've got two pails. And they're carrying the water up the stairs, spiraling their way all the way to the top of the temple to, to mash up, you know, their next batch of booze and carrying up the grain. And you know, in my mind, like the perfect place or the perfect distillery would be this this adventure where you're going to this remote place in the middle of nowhere to hike up the stairs to a temple that they walk every day to bring the materials up where they make the booze. So you want to be left you know, alone. <laughs> So you picked an artichoke field. (laughs) Which is, to me, the same thing. No, because who goes in the artichoke field (laughs) except people who tend the field, and that's it. (laughs) But so we just started with kind of like, this would be, you know, the perfect place. Okay. And so we took this uh, this patch of farm in the middle of an artichoke field, and we built a um, a two-acre tea garden. Um, and, uh, And then we put the distillery in the middle of the tea garden. And made it so you could walk around all the trails and sort of zigzag your way through it. And, you know, and there was a distillery in the middle of it. And the idea was to make 2,000 cases a year um, with, you know, just the two of us. Uh, and, and that was it. Okay. Uh, you know, no more, no less. Um, and, and so then you got to the question of well, what are you going to make? And the, uh, and the first thing that came up was that we didn't have enough money to go buy the equipment. So, uh, you know, we'd have to build all of our equipment from scratch. Sure. And we thought, well, okay. I mean, you know, how hard can it be? <laughs> right, right. Like people do this. Yeah, you're pounding metal, or you're, you know, just welding some stainless. It's not, yeah. you know, I, I know people. Yeah, like you said, people have done this. It's, it's fine. But I have a feeling it wasn't that easy. <laughs> no, it, it was more complicated. Than that. But <laughs> yeah. Then we thought, okay, well, well, if we're going to build this stuff from scratch, so first off, let's go look up how to solder copper and how to produce copper and you know all that stuff. 
Yeah, so you and had no figure out how to get the boilers. You had no right. sort of knowledge of of how to do this, but you knew that that's what you wanted, and so you thought, well, I'll just learn it, and and there you go. Yeah, and it's not so distant from you know. I mean, I have a sculpture degree, hence the amusement park design stuff. Okay. So I mean, it wasn't like so incredibly distant from what seemed familiar to me. Um, yeah. the, the boilers were a little trickier because you had to go. You know, uh, we bought them on Craigslist for like five hundred bucks out of the basements of. Uh, of old apartment buildings, and then I had to go get the manual for how to repair them and then put them back together and then figure out what was wrong with them and fix them. It's sort of like assembling an engine block from scratch. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, so we did that and set up our boilers that way. And then we got to the still, we thought, okay, well, if we're going to build this thing ourselves, we ought to build something that's relevant and cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, you know, something that other people don't have. And, uh, and so I went digging through the um, historical archives from the New York Times, because there's a, there's a straight database, if you don't know it exists, where uh, the New York Times will give you access for like $5 a month to all of their historical archive going back to the 1800s. Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And so I went onto the old historical archives, and I started digging through old documents, and I found this, um, this article from 1870 describing uh, the four different grades of bourbon. And and what they are, wow. Four and how they're made. Grades of bourbon. I wasn't aware that this was a thing. I thought bourbon huh. was just bourbon. Well, yeah, that was the most interesting part of it. Was I looked at it and thought the same thing. Yeah, and went, wait, none of these ways that they're describing these different four styles of bourbon actually exist anymore. They're all gone. They're all extinct. Okay. Huh. And uh, and so the the highest grade, according to this article, uh, was something that was called um, log and cop, or it was called uh, steam bourbon. And the description of how to make steam bourbon required that you had to make it in what was called a log and copper still. Okay. And I went, okay, now we're on to something. What is that? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, and so I went digging through all these old historical documents, and uh, a log and copper still is actually a really cool thing. So the, uh, the story is that when the colonists came over to the U.S., they didn't have a lot of metal smelting in the U.S., and so you had to buy sheet metal from Europe that came on boats. And it was really expensive. And so rather than make copper stills like they had in Europe, the colonists came up with the solution, which is that you, you cut down a tree, mm-hmm. and then you would split the tree in half and then hollow it out like a canoe. And then you would uh, you put it back together and strap it tight with leather, like wet leather straps and let them dry to, to tighten the, the tree back together. Okay. Um, and you cut a hole in the top, you put the copper still head on, and then the condenser connected to it um, in, like, a, a wooden tub for cooling water. And then you, you mash into the tree, put the still head on top, and then you light the tree on fire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And, uh, Single and, use. And, yeah, I'm with <laughs> you. I'm with you. <laughs> I mean, you know, a little dangerous, but it, but it would work. Sure. And uh, and so when you lit the tree on fire, the uh, the heat from the fire on the tree would cause mash to boil inside, and then that would still, and you get whiskey out of the other end. Yeah. And so that was in the early colonial days when they got um, fast forward to the 1800s, where the industrial revolution is now very much in full full throttle in the U.S. They've got plenty of metal, you know, smelting and access here. Yeah. And uh, and they realized that when they made the same whiskey in the copper still, it didn't taste the same. And they wanted the flavor that you get from distilling it in the middle of a tree. Yeah. And so tree what they ended up creating was what they also called a log and copper still, sort of second generation. And it was basically a giant wooden barrel 
uh, with a still head on top uh, that was copper and then the coil and uh, and steam tubes that ran to the inside of the barrel and the steam would heat the mash and cause it to boil hmm. uh, inside the barrel and then it would pick up the flavor of the uh, of the ochre of the chestnut barrel uh, that it was distilling in and that was the, the definition of this highest grade of bourbon from 1870. Wow. So, um, and I thought, okay, we're going to make that. Okay. Right. <laughs> okay. That's your first attempt. Um, God, you are you you shoot for the stars, man. I'll tell you that. So you started hollowing out a tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no. What I actually did is I went and I bought a um, a two thousand gallon uh, French oak tank for wine production. Okay. And then built a copper still had to go on top of it, and built a condenser to connect up to that. And uh, and I massively oversized this thing. It ended up being like uh, uh, three stories tall. my god (laughs) um yeah i I assembled it on on a forklift like extended all the way up okay (laughs) um with uh with my with joanne's brother driving the forklift down below and me up on a pallet you know three stories in the air bolting this thing together safe um but yeah so uh, so we ended up building that called the company lost spirits and thought we'd bring back these this lost extinct form of bourbon and that's going to be really cool yeah and and pretty much no one cared <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean I, when was this what year 2010 uh well we built it in 2010 we released the first products in 2012 but between 2010 and uh and 2012 we realized pretty fast that uh, that what we had made really nobody wanted. <laughs> why, why not? Can, what was just? Can you can you describe the flavor a little bit and what was kind of different well, than just the marketed? So I'm not really a bourbon drinker. I'll I'll preface this with that statement. Okay. Um, so I'm much more of a Scotch guy, and uh, and always have been. And uh, and so the the difference is that you know with bourbon drinkers they tend to. Or at least the people that we were getting over, which are, you know, writers and critics in the space and people we knew who were super into it. Yeah. They really, bourbons are really, really, really similar to each other. And there's not a tremendous amount of variation from one distillery to the next in that space. Okay. And people really didn't want anything that didn't match up to that classical flavor profile. Hmm. Okay, um, so any, anything thought, too huh. far away from that central target, people aren't going to like because it doesn't taste like what they're used to tasting? Is that about right? Yeah, and the stuff that they liked, because we made all kinds of different variations and different batches, and the stuff that we made that tasted a lot like Buffalo Trace, they really liked, and I really wasn't that into it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the stuff that I made that I really, really liked, they weren't all that into it. <laughs> and, so I, <laughs> and so I realized pretty fast, not going to be a marriage made in heaven. Right. <laughs> you know? Mm, right. Um, and we kind of looked at it and scratched our heads and, you know, went to work trying to figure out what to do next. But in the meantime, while the still was sitting there, I had um, had a couple of months, uh, like like six, uh, where I had to sit around and wait for government regulators to come out and do, like, government regulator-like things. Yeah. As they were. Um, and, uh, and so in that downtime where you're just sort of sitting there twiddling your thumbs, which is always when the best stuff in my life happens to be, by the way. So <laughs> I, uh, I kind of love the government regulators taking their sweet time in a strange roundabout masochistic way. Right, right. Because then you <laughs> but, have to do something. You have to think about something. <laughs> <laughs> but so I got stuck sitting there staring at this thing for six months. So I went out and yeah. I took my pile of scrap copper from all the trimmings, building the still and soldering it together and made it into a dragon head so it would match up with the tea garden. And then I uh, got up on the forklift and. You know, put a big dragon head on the end of the still, and so and, uh, that and, you can see on on your website too, and it looks 
Oh, yeah, well, we have the new ones now. So every cell I have is a dragon head now. Oh, okay. Um, still but if you look at the old ones, you'll see the giant wooden body and then the dragon head at the end of the, the still pipe. Wow. And, uh, and so I took the coil at the end of the steam line where it, uh, where when the still heats up to a certain temperature, not all the steam condenses anymore, and I ran the steam vent up to the dragon's mouth, so that way when the still was, you know, at temperature, he would breathe steam. Nice. And, uh... And I thought this was pretty cool, and uh, and unlike the um, uh, the whole steam bourbon thing and bringing back lost extinct forms of American whiskey and stuff, this people actually cared about. Okay. Um, and so we ended up on the cover of the Stone Magazine with the you know crazy steampunk dragon still, and we had people coming out to visit, and all, all of a sudden, like you know, because of the dragon head, we had. <laughs> isn't that isn't that uh, kind of the way it goes, man? Like you're you're sitting here trying to revive some lost spirit that uh, that nobody does anymore, and in the beer world, that kind of stuff gets tons of attention, and in the wine world, I think it gets tons of attention too. Like here's an eighty an eight thousand year old you know jar made of wine, and you're trying to you know bring that kind of back, but everyone goes, eh. but you make you bend some copper into a shape of a dragon head, and then suddenly the world is beating a path to your door. <laughs> That's basically what happened. Did you put your head through um, it all? Because that would drive me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing is that when you get into other segments of the Stoke Spirits, okay. um, then it's a, it's a different world. Um, hmm. It's that specific segment, which is the one where I found this you know gem of an old article. Uh, you know, that group of consumers, or at least those consumers at that time, because I think this might have changed today. Yeah. Um, but at that time, people just were not into it at all. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so we went, okay, well, let's, uh, you know, we got into one set of conversations and we were sitting there pondering what are, uh, you know, what do you want to make? What's the next project? What are we going to do instead? You know, all those kinds of things. And Joanne and I had both fallen in love with, um, uh, with Octomore. Um, which for any of your listeners who don't know what it is, it's a uh, it's a super peated whiskey from a distillery called Brickladdy, uh in Iowa and Scotland. Octomore. And, uh, and yeah, and okay. Joanne and I were both super into this whiskey. We just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And it's relatively young. It's a five year old um, super peated Iowa whiskey. That's that's uh, it's borderline a cross between drinking a glass of whiskey and smoking a cigar because it's so smoky. Oh wow! Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like I would love uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> and we just both really loved this stuff, and we'd had it at a, uh, at a distributor's house years ago, or years prior. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we went like, well, okay, what would the American version of that be? You know, if we made that here, what would that be? Yeah. And uh, and then we thought, well, you know, every t- there's this, um, for people who aren't really into Isla whiskeys, uh, you know, when you get um, into scotches that are smoked from peat sources from different places or different parts of Scotland, uh, or peat that's colonized by heather bushes, which is called heather peat versus peat that's on the coast where it gets, uh, you know, inundated with seaweed and all that kind of stuff and salt water, they're really distinctly different flavors to the smoke that comes through. And we thought, and so I started doing some research and realized that um, 2% of the landmass of planet Earth is covered in peat bogs. Okay, and I thought, wow, I wonder what all the rest of these peat bogs taste like. Yeah, it's not just <laughs> Scotland, right? They're not—they don't have the the patent on uh, peat, right? Exactly. Okay, and and so we thought, okay, let's go make a young super peated whiskey made out of different peat sources from all over the place, and then we get to 
you know, basically write off a travel budget that'll let us go to different locations to go dig up peat. Now we're getting now we're getting right. to the point of the whole entire thing. The dragon head is finally paying for itself. <laughs> so, where, so where did you go? Where where did you harvest peat from? Uh, so we did a private island in California for uh, for what's called Ouroboros. Uh, we did a whole bunch from um, evergreen forest peat from northern Canada, north of Edmonton. Okay. Uh, we did Saskatoon berry bog, colonized bogs from Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sorry, from Manitoba. Um, and uh, I never did get to, but I still want to go back and do it again, um, a cranberry bog from the East Coast. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then such we a thing. did right. Florida Everglades peat, which was actually my favorite but I could only do it once because um, it turned out that uh, Florida Everglades peat has a mite that's a danger to California agriculture. Oh. And so all of my mm. peat shipment got confiscated. Oh, bummer, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I can I can appreciate where they're coming from. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, yeah. So uh, we were actually like trying to figure out, you know, was there some way we could irradiate it, sanitize this yeah, stuff? Yeah, gas <laughs> it or something, man, but they, there's no go, huh? No, I mean, oh, man. Could, it was it was a no go. Could you? Uh, would there be someone to smoke the malt in Florida? I mean, I suppose I could have tried to figure something out like that. But we were much more interested. I mean, our goal was uh, we were at the time trying to convince the Discovery Channel to uh, to pay for us to go to the Amazon and collect peach from like a boat on the Amazon River. Uh, yeah, <laughs> from the mangroves. They didn't bite. <laughs> No, uh, well, I mean, it did, but it didn't end up happening. Oh, man. Uh, but, you know, that, like, that was sort of the dream was, you know, how cool would this be to go, you know, to all these different exotic locations around the world and, and go dig up their peat and then dry it and then, you know, send it back to ourselves in the U.S. and light it on fire to smoke grain and, and create a whiskey that's sort of representative of each one of the different trips. I, I've, I've seen... Uh, less interesting reality TV shows <laughs> yeah. exist for season after season. <laughs> you know what? And, and I have this like weird theory about. Uh, I guess it's not weird because it's probably not original. Um, but but reality shows based around the the drinks industry that doesn't have any yelling or screaming, um, like that bar makeover guy, super annoying. Um, but I, I don't. I don't I, I, there's a ton of ideas like Sam Calgione from Dogfish Head try to do this, oh, yeah. and no one cared. Like no one really cares. Um, so I think like, like, like the Vice has one that Beerland or whatever that I heard is just oh, really? not good. Um, but no one ca- it's on the second season and, and no one cares about it. And and it's like I think it's interesting to the to like a smaller base of people who want to know the story behind everything. Um, but I guess yeah I, I don't know. It's, I guess it's like the bourbon that you recreated, right? It's it's. It's You're fascinating, right. but I think what's at the thing to us just isn't interesting to other people all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or it is in passing. Like, hey, that's really cool. What else do you have? Kind of a thing. But I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Well, people don't want to invest the months of watching something happen. Like, that's true. Like, a, like a spirit age. I think it'd be cool. I would totally watch it. I mean, there's a there's a guy who's made a living looking for Bigfoot on TV. It's just, (laughs) come on, man. Uh, Hey, Brian, I'll tell you what, man, let's take a break real fast. um, And then we're going to come back. Uh, I want to fast forward a bit and get into kind of the, the R and D that you're doing there at lost spirits. Uh, I want to try the spirit in front of me because I can smell it and I'm dying to drink it. Um, And so I want to, I want to talk about that. Um, So when we come back, we're going to, we're going to jump into that. Is that cool? 
Cool. That'll work. All right. So after the break, we'll be back with Brian from Lost Spirits Distillery. Uh, they're in L.A. now, and they're producing some really good stuff. We have it in our glass, and we're going to yeah. drink it. I can't wait. <laughs> Neither can I. This is Heads and Tails Podcast. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Thanks for hanging on. We're about to get to the best part of the show, Warren, tasting the spirit. I'm so ready. I'm ready, too, man. We've been talking a lot about it. We're here uh, on the phone with Brian from Lost Spirits in Los Angeles, California. And uh, we have sitting in front of us the Abomination uh, Spirit. Uh, and it's uh, heavily peated, and I can't wait because I really enjoy not only peated malt things, but heavily peated malt. Because I feel like if you're going to do it, just do it. <laughs> Might as well be heavy. Right, right, right. Um, but, Brian, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, man, is uh, kind of how I found out about you is that you, you know, are you're, you're developing or have developed a, a way to sort of advance age spirits. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, want, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how that happens. You know, obviously there's you know probably trade secrets and all this kind of stuff. We don't need full blueprints, but um, just kind of an overarching thing so our listeners uh, can kind of wrap their heads around it as well. Because for me, it's totally mind blowing. It's like flipping everything. It's like flipping the table over. Uh, you know, it's 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 so crazy to to me. But uh, if you want to just do me a favor and just dip into that water a little bit and, and how you're accomplishing this advanced aging technique. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the the short version of this is that, uh, you know, we developed it because we needed the means of being able to rapidly test different distillates. So what I was trying to figure out was how to take different, you know, so if you're an old distillery that's been around for 200 years and you're trying to create something new, there's all these interesting questions that come into play, like what distillation cuts are you going to take? What yeast are you going to use to ferment? What wood are you going to use to age in? And all of those different possible variations. Yeah. And they've had generations to figure out the answers to those questions. And the problem I had was that as a brand new distillery opening up, I really had no context to be able to make those decisions. And with it taking, you know, five, six, seven, eight, 30 years before you really know if you made the right choice or not. It was a question of how do I know that I didn't just fill up an entire warehouse full of barrels that are all going to suck someday. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So did you... So I was trying to figure out... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so the the whole uh, inspiration for this was more just for R&D to kind of Mm -hmm. test, not even necessarily release this as a a product. Yeah, no, we didn't even originally release it as a product. What, uh, what ultimately happened was uh, I had figured out a way to force the chemical reaction in barrels called esterification, which is the, the primary driving chemical reaction that makes booze age uh, in a barrel. It's the same thing the yeast do at the end when they're cleaning up a fermentation in beer making. Okay. Um, but it's triggered through organic chemistry in a barrel as opposed to biologically by the yeast. And, and it allows precursor compounds from the fermentation to get converted into fruity esters, and then it allows products that are that are extracted from the wood gradually over time as the polymers in the wood dissolve to then be esterified into other more complex things and uh, and that creates all of the you know leather and tobacco and you know all the, the good stuff characteristics hmm. that yeah that you associate with old booze 
And so initially I was just trying to figure out how to trigger the esterification process and then try it with different woods to figure out which kind of barrels I wanted to use. Um, and, uh, and we ended up getting that to work. Mm-hmm. And then uh, fast forward four years after that, I ended up uh, figuring out how to break the polymer structure and the wood apart. And that allowed you to sort of um, gain most of the, uh, the flavor compounds that you would get as the barrel dissolves over the course of years in the spirit. And once you combine those two and then fine-tune it just so, uh, you can actually recreate the chemical signature of old booze. So, and then at a certain point in the process, kind of looked at it and just went, wow, why are we, why are we using this as an R&D tool as opposed <laughs> to just making the product this way? Right. <laughs> so it, 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 uh, it, it's not so much, let uh, see if I got this straight, it's not so much aging the spirit, but it's, it's uh, the long-term effects of the wood on the spirit. Yeah, it's triggering right? all the same chemical reactions that would happen over the course of many, many years in a barrel. Yeah. So, but it, the difference is that you're not really speeding up the age process because aging in nature, uh, if you can call what humans do when they put booze into a barrel, nature, which I'm not sure works <laughs> for the top of life. Sounds good to me, <laughs> um, man. Is that as the, uh, as the booze sits in the barrel for years and years and years, the, uh, the raw carboxylic acids in the fermentation, which are the off flavors in the background of a freshly distilled pot still spirit, mm-hmm. those slowly chemically bind to the alcohol molecules to form esters, which taste like fruits. And then at the same time, you have um, polymers in the wood dissolving. And as the polymers in the wood break down, they produce more precursors that then undergo that reaction to taste like different fruits. And then you have the lignin polymer structure in the wood slowly breaking down to produce phenols and phenolic aldehydes and phenolic compounds, which both taste like smoky things and, you know, rich dessert-like things on their own. And then also those undergo similar reactions where they turn into esters, which are where you get a lot of your pipe tobacco kind of flavors. And then also those compounds will chemically bind to the esters formed earlier from the carboxylic acids mm. to form phenylated esters that convert fruits into flowers and things like that. So the, fir- the first reactions... Um, affect the the later reactions right okay and all of that happens very gradually in a barrel and they all happen together at the same time in a barrel and so Hmm. you can't really accelerate that in the way that it happens inside the barrel okay Uh, that just that's it's sort of the mistake that everybody before me made was trying to figure out how to do that okay (laughs) and instead what you really wanted to do was look at it and say okay well, let's go figure out how to trigger each one of these different reactions independently. And then if we can and, and make this more bite-sized. And then if we can figure out how to trigger each one of the different reactions that's happening, then let's try to daisy-chain them together so that you can put them all in a line together and, and slowly o- over the course of the, you know, several days, if you will, basically build chemically building block by building block, all of the same pieces that would have happened into the spirit in the barrel, uh, okay. and then get to an end point where it suddenly matches up with nature. Huh. And we were able to do that, which was really cool. We yeah. published all the forensic chemistry and had it audited by the guys at UC Davis and in print and stuff. And, uh, and then sort of, you know, finally someone did it after uh, 100 <laughs> years of humans trying to figure out how to do it. Not bad from a guy <laughs> in an artichoke yeah. field, man. <laughs> so how it was a really fun project? Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I bet. So exactly how old uh, is the the spirit in our glass? The abomination. I, the abomination. So 
the abomination is really interesting because I tried not to make it match up to an old chemical signature exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Navy rum that I put out does. Um, that actually matches up to the chemical signature of, um, or very closely matches up to the chemical signature of 1975 Port Marant, which I use as my control sample for rum. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the uh, in the case of the abomination, you know, I really took an approach of okay, if I'm going to make an Isla style whiskey, I'm going to work really hard at not sort of making something that Isla can make, right? Right. Uh, this is more of a religious philosophical approach. Okay. Uh, okay. You know, it's sort of like <laughs> what I like to say is when you're making rum, you're making a beverage. When you're making whiskey, you're touching on people's most deeply held beliefs and the things that get them through tough times in life. Hmm. Um, <laughs> right. and, uh, and, you re- and I sort of really try to look at it like, you know, you're, you're messing with people's religion, not their beverage. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, if I take that perspective, then, then what is it that we're doing you know, and how does it fit into that bigger narrative? And I'm okay, it's, it's heresy and witchcraft. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, so if you're a heretic and a witch, how do you, uh, what, what are you going to use that power to do? And I thought, let's go make an Isla whiskey that Isla can't make. Right. Uh, you, you know? And so I took New American Oak. So I started with an 18-month-old Isla that I bought in uh, in Scotland. Okay. And then I took um, New American Oak and developed a process in the laboratory that allows me to pull a lot of the tannin structure out of the wood. Um, and by extracting the tannin structure from the wood, what you're left with is, uh, is wood that's sort of chemically similar to used wood from a, from a wine barrel. So you, you, you um, advanced age it. Right, you're sort of aging the wood. Yeah, okay. <laughs> if that makes sense. You're a wizard. And, uh, and so... <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a wizard. Yeah. Also, getting the Scots to part with their 18 month whiskey is a bit of magic. Yeah, I that imagine, was its too. own special challenge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of doors slammed in my face asking. I bet, man. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's um, the Americans coming over again. Yeah. What's happening? Were you giving them samples of of stuff you had done? Oh yeah, no, uh, yeah. We had we had a guy who helped us out with this a lot, who's really well connected in Scotland. Okay, and uh, and he brought samples of some whiskey we had made in the laboratory, and he had people taste it, and then write down on a piece of paper how old they thought it was, and then at the end he would tell them, and then flip open the paper, and then they would throw them out. Um. <laughs> you know what? And and if this was, I don't know. Uh, I mean, obviously, like a hundred years ago, he would have been burned at the stake. I mean, I, I think I think what you're saying, like the heretics and the witchcraft, like I think that's that's kind of pretty accurate because you know anybody I think in the spirit world who's who's entrenched in it for generations, like a lot of these dudes are over there in Scotland. Um, you're gonna you're gonna look at things like this, like just total well abominations. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we did find one guy who, you know, just uh, said this is going to be hilarious and, uh, and then made us an offer uh, with a premium price for smuggling uh, to wow. get us the, uh, the, the stuff that we wanted. Can you can you say who it was and or so, no? No. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't need to give the uh, the, uh, the powers of yeah. be in Scotland any more information than right. they have. Yeah. <laughs> All right. He would be deported. You're right. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, I don't want to get him to go to the U.S. State Department to ask for citizenship for a guy's <laughs> refugee from Scotland. <laughs> right, seeking asylum. Um, I want to defect. <laughs> but so, uh, so ultimately, we got an 18-month-old dialogue, and then we, uh, and then I took um, American Oak, 
and then pull the tannin structure out of it. Mm -hmm. And you could do that using water as the medium to remove the, the tannin structure. But you could also do it using wine. And so I thought it'd be really fun to make a used wine, quote unquote, barrel, if you will, <laughs> from a, a wine that would be perfect to age whiskey in, but isn't used to age whiskey in because it's a wine that is aged in stainless instead of being aged in a barrel. Okay, right. Um, and so I settled on late harvest Riesling uh, because late harvest Riesling has most of the same kind of characteristics as you get out of like a Sauternes, uh, which makes for fantastic whiskey barrels. Uh, but since late harvest Rieslings are aged in stainless, not aged in barrels, it was an opportunity to then make a barrel that doesn't quote-unquote exist. <laughs> um, and then make a whiskey that some people have argued shouldn't morally be allowed to exist. I think uh, I think I like Brian. I I I like where he's. I like where his brain is hidden because yeah. this is like uh, it's some funky stuff going on. <laughs> I like it. Good on you, man. And smart to come at it from this way because if he w approached anybody over there, be like, yeah, I just want to copy what you're doing. I imagine yeah. everybody would. Yeah. Slam the door in his oh, face. Oh, yeah, no, they would have all slammed the door in his yeah. face. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, uh, and so this presented an opportunity to sort of add to the conversation that is, you know, Iowa whiskey, if you will, yeah. as opposed to sort of like competing with it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so that was what we did for the abominations. And then I titled them as an abomination. And then, you know, each one has a subchapter name uh, that are chapters from the island of Dr. Moreau. So, uh, right. you know, if you're drinking the black labeled one, that one says the stairs of the law and the red label and the crying of the puma. Right. Wow. So there's only been two. My sense of humor. There's only been two versions of this so far. So far, yeah. Uh, the uh, concerning the beast folk is next. Um, What's that one? <laughs> um, it... You know, I don't know yet. I've got a okay. great label for it, but I haven't figured out what the liquid's going to be yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's changed from uh, the first chapter to this chapter? Are you just tweaking oh, yeah, no, the so, aging process? A really fun thing. So I was originally only going to launch one of these, and I was running a set of experiments on all different, you know, versions of the of the wood. And there were two I really liked, and they were the same wood and the same whiskey base and the same wine base and the same everything, except mm -hmm. that one of them was toasted wood and one of them was charred wood. Hmm. And I thought, you know, I okay. can't make up my mind which one of these I like better. And so I decided to just release both of them okay. and, uh, and call one of them one thing and one of them the other thing. And so one of the really, really cool elements of this is that if you're into booze, you can actually take the two and taste them side by side, and what you're, the difference between them is the difference between charred wood in the, in the context of the Sayers of the Law and toasted wood in the case of the crying of the Puma, hmm. and everything else about them is identical. Hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting. That would be. Yeah. So that's a, a really fun uh, you know, booze nerd exercise. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm, 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 I can get the behind that kind of exercise. My doctor says I need to exercise more, and I'm that's, sure that's it. Yeah, that's probably what he means. Yeah. Well, let's taste this while we have it here because I'm getting thirsty. It's well, very, yeah, it's very right. great color. It's very dark. It's dark brown. It's kind of darker than I I would expect. I, I guess knowing knowing about it. Yeah. Um. But uh, you know, I, I honestly don't know much about spirits. So I mean, I've seen I kind of take it for face value. Eighteen years that are significantly lighter than this in color. Yeah, and the color's all from the wood. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, there's no coloring added to it. The, uh, the one of the things you run into when you're making booze that a lot of people don't realize is the color. It, it's it's true that it gets darker with age, but it's also worth pointing out that it gets darker with age at different rates based on what kind of wood you're using. 
And so the newer the wood, the darker it becomes as it ages. So like a lot of the sherry cask um, whiskeys and stuff that you see in the world are often newer wood than the old bourbon casks. Mm-hmm. And, and so you uh, you end up actually getting a darker color out of those at the same age than you would have the used bourbon wood, for example. So mm-hmm. age isn't necessarily denoted by color, but it's sort of a part of it in an interesting way. Okay. Oh, okay. I, I, I really enjoy this for, for, for a number of reasons, um, mainly because it doesn't really taste like anything that I've, I've had before. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. it, it it tastes totally yep. different. It tastes almost like almost like a Frankenstein's monster. There's there's the the peat, uh, but I've never had the peat with this much oak before, and this this oak, but I've never had the oak with this much like char of like s- smoke leather kind of flavor. And it's just these three things that are just kind of sewn together, um, but in a functional way. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it. I that's, really that's... really enjoy this. <laughs> It's pretty fun. Yeah, it, good on you, man. <laughs> yeah. Good on. Yeah, it's it's great, man. And you know what? Honestly, it's it's cool to hear about the the, the process and and how you how you came to this and and what you're trying to do because I think that's a lot of of uh, you know the the story behind these 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 spirits, especially in the craft spirits world that we're all kind of a part of now. It's it's that it, it's, people want to know this kind of stuff, and and it's, especially mm-hmm. at, at this level when you're when you're doing what I would call groundbreaking work. But you know, I don't know. You might th- think differently. Um, it, to you know, to let in let everybody in on the gag, I guess, and other for a lack of a better word, right? Mm-hmm. That's very much the idea. So you've done this yeah. with rum. And you, this is a uh, peated single malt. Is th- what's next, or are, are you uh, going to apply the aging process to another another spirit? Well, I've got a bunch of projects in the works. Uh, so the most like you know eminent projects, uh, I've got three that are all about to come out. Um, one of them is uh, there was a distillery called Medford Rum. Uh, it was really legendary. In the uh, in the colonial era, it was one of the America's mm. first distilleries and oldest uh, operations, and it was really known for having a very distinctive character. It closed in 1905. Um, I was able to obtain a sample of 1858 Medford Rum. Wow! And uh, and then we took that sample, and it had a lot of really interesting distinctive characteristics. The sort of bitter cough syrup cherry note woven with like a floral cologne almost kind of thing. Really interesting stuff, and uh, and so we decided to make that. So we sent a guy to Medford, Massachusetts, and met with a historical society there, and then tracked down the original location of the uh, of the old distillery. And then uh, we were able to put out a whole bunch of um, petri dishes with medium in them to catch yeast strains, and uh, and isolate wild yeast strains from all around the building. Oh my God! And we ultimately got a. Uh, yeah, we ended up getting two two samples or two cultures that came home uh, that had that produced the same distinctive characteristic flavor of Medford rum, and uh, we got them actually out of the graveyard across the street. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hmm. All right, <laughs> true story. Yeah, uh, which we thought was really funny. Hey, man, if, and, you, uh, if you can't put yourself into your own work, <laughs> put yourself into someone else's work. I guess is you know. right. or decompose decomposition. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so now that we've uh, we've managed to isolate the original yeast strain from Medford Distillery, mm-hmm. uh, then we've grown that up in the distillery, and it now lives in our refrigerator. And we're using that to produce um, a product that we're going to call Colonial Two, 
uh, which is really limited runs because it's a low temperature yeast. It likes to be cold. And my distillery is designed for high temperature fermentations. So I can really only run it in basically December and January. Um, and okay. if I install a whole bunch of cooling equipment that I don't feel like installing. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm going to do that as a, uh, as a one-off winter special kind of thing. Uh, so that's one of the new ones in the works. And there's a super special version of that where uh, the old uh, colonial distilleries on the eastern seaboard in the U.S. used to make a lot of barrels out of chestnut wood. And the American chestnut tree um, is effectively extinct uh, because of a, um, a fungus that came over with Japanese chestnuts from Asia uh, in the late hmm. 1800s. And so we had to basically get wood from an extinct tree. <laughs> uh, so we ended up uh, buying antique furniture from the 1850s and then cutting the furniture apart to get the wood out. <laughs> wow. Okay, so, okay, so now you're, you're aging spirits on furniture. <laughs> What's, did you fall down as a child? Like, what is wrong? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, yeah, resurrecting hey. old spirits like this is crazy. It's crazy work. You're like the Doc Brown yeah, of the spirits world. <laughs> Money! <laughs> so that's a fun one. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's going to be the Colonial 2, and then there'll be the, the Oak version will be the released one. Okay. And then uh, and then inside the story only, sort of gift shop only, will be the, the ones made out of antique chestnut furniture. So let's uh, talk about the distillery real fast uh, because uh, I saw in that Wired article we talked about earlier, um, you have a thing going on. You have you have a, a whole concept uh, going on down there. What what's going on down there? What's going on in LA? Tell me. Yeah, so the distillery is uh, is unusual. Um, you know, it kind of started with a problem, which was we wanted to make rum from scratch in the distillery, and yeah. the. Uh, and rum really comes from a tropical sort of jungle environment. And so we thought, you know, if we're going to do this in the dry, hot, arid climate of Los Angeles, we probably need to sort of create a, a high humidity kind of jungle environment in which to do it. So we did. And we, uh, and we built the jungle. And then we ran into the problem of the, uh, of the foliage juice were too thick to get people through on tours. And so we ultimately um, cut a swath through and then put in a, a, a river. No. It doubles as the cooling water for the distillery. As, as, as you sometimes are wanting to do. It's just, yeah. you know what we need? This, is, <laughs> this seems like the most practical solution <laughs> to all of these problems. Well, that's, that, that was my thinking. You know? yeah. I mean, it's nice. You don't have to use electricity for running the cooling systems. Mm -hmm. just, you know, sort of pump the river water through as a cooling agent. There you go. Um, and then that heats up the, the water and then creates the high humidity environment. And it, it just sort of self-propagates and creates even more jungle. Wow. And, uh, and so, we, so we did that, and then to get people through on the tours, we ultimately floated a barge on the river, and, uh, and so that way people could sail through the distillery, um, uh, which is really fun and, uh, and amusing. Yeah. And, uh, and the idea is that you know, we have a whole series of different tasting rooms, and, uh, and I mean, it's, it's big. It's like you know, 25,000 plus square feet of it. Mm -hmm. And so as, as people get, go through the distillery from one area to the next, you sort of get to go to a different tasting room that matches up to sort of the imagined terroir of that specific spirit. So we have a, an island of Dr. Moreau that you can dock at the island and then try the whiskeys in. And, uh, and another area that's kind of evocative of parts of the Caribbean where you're sipping the rum uh, from its original inspiration point. And we're building a new um, a sort of 
deranged Alice in Wonderland carousel room, which has a pretty weak connection to the booze. I just really wanted to make one. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the gift shop has animatronic birds and they hawk items to you. And, you know, it's, it's fun. Dude, that's uh, awesome. I, I, I love that. And uh, I can't remember if I told you off the air or not, but uh, at one point, if I, had, if I had money, I wanted to always open a bar that was themed like the Haunted Mansion in Disneyland. Mm-hmm. With the same thing, animatronics, like the the whole works, or maybe actually more to the point, uh, Trader Sam's in Disneyland. Uh, I, I think that would be that would be rad, and it sounds like that's what you've done. And um, so, actually, I'm going to be in L.A. on the 26th, I think, of January. I'm going to send you an email, and hopefully, you're there. And I'm going to stop by, and I'm going to experience this, and whether you like it or not, because this is this is the thing. Someone else did my dream, Warren. Yep. Again, right next to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's amazing. How, can people just show up anytime? Are you just open to the public? Or? Well, no, there's uh, there's there's reservations. Uh, so you got to go onto our website and book a reservation out in advance. I'll but, make um, one. We just opened up a new wing to the distillery, and so the um, it's much easier to get tickets now. It used to be uh, like a you know around a four to six month wait. Wow. Uh, right now, it takes only a few weeks. Um, because we opened up so much new inventory and people are just starting to book it all out. So cool. Um, so yeah, there's a you can definitely get tickets nowadays, and they're thirty five bucks a piece, so we didn't make it too expensive. Okay, um, nice. And uh, but it's a lot of fun. It sounds like and, it's worth uh, it, man. Yeah, and we're working on a new botanical garden, so that's going to be probably the next thing or next new addition to it. Wow. Uh, is all um, like fruiting plants from the Amazon. That, uh, that are all different fruits that you normally can't buy in the U.S. or Europe. Okay. Um, and so that way you can end up making brandy out of them and get a chance to sort of walk through the botanical gardens and see the write-up on each one of the different trees and the kind of fruit it produces and that sort of thing. You know it would be a trip, and I don't know if it's if this is, it fits in, but there's that, uh, I think they call it a super fruit, or it's, it's that one fruit that you can buy. I think it's uh, out of Africa. Um, that changes like salty to sweet or sour to oh, sweet. Right, it like tweaks your palate. Oh, miracle fruit. Miracle. Yeah, there yeah. you go. That would be a. Fun, I don't know if it would distill and have those properties or whatever, but I, that would be kind of a. That'd be kind of a crazy thing. It'd be really interesting to see what it does. Yeah. I'll probably try playing with it one of these days. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, Brian, where can people learn more about you and your crazy life? Well, definitely check out our website, which is lostspirits.net. Um, uh, you know, or Google. There's, there's volumes. <laughs> the machine knows all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's been a fun adventure, and it just seems to keep going. Yeah, man, that's cool. I'm 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 real happy for you. Um, I definitely want to come in and check your spot out because uh, it sounds like a trip, and uh, the spirit is great. I love it, and I'm looking forward to trying more, man. You got it. All right, thanks, yeah. man. I appreciate well, thank it, Brian. You so much, thanks, guys. Brian. I really appreciate it. All right, take it easy. Cheers. Bye. Good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, that was cool, man. That's uh, this this abomination is crazy. Yeah, I look for it. I'm, I'm sure though, there's on the website you can learn about where it is or whatever, but uh, where to buy it and yeah. distribution flow and whatever. But it sounds like if you're in LA, you need to plan a little bit to go. Of course, I'm a big radio star, so I'll get in. I'll just I'll just knock on the door and be like, right. "Hey, it's 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 me." And they'll say thirty five dollars, and we'll see you in a few weeks. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be like, "Oh, all right, that's fine." Um, but a destination distillery like that is yeah. not something I've heard of before. No, not at all. It sounds it sounds great. Yeah, I'm excited for, it. and especially there, it sounds like they're having fun not only with producing the spirit, but selling it. 
Right. So right. Wh- why not? If you ha- look, if you have the cash, and if you have the creativity, and you have the know-how, the ingenuity, just do it. Yeah, yeah. man, make this big thing, twenty-five thousand square feet. Yeah, it's huge. Have people drinking your spirits on a barge? On a barge. In a river? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you want to get on the barge to go to the third tasting room? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I you... really, really do. <laughs> I didn't know I needed to, but now I need to. Right. And you can. You can. Uh, all right, Warren, what do you think? You want to get out of here? Uh, yeah. I'm ready to be done with January. Okay. Um, if you have feedback regarding the show or how handsome we are, you Where's can send it go? to feedback at thebrewingnetwork.com. That's true. We want to know uh, what do you think of the other shows, the other two shows we've done. Of course, this is our third in uh, in our our short lifespan here, being craft spirits experts. I could I could say that honestly. I think after three episodes, we might be experts. I think so too. I I've, I've I can distill pretty much. <laughs> uh, no, but honestly, or if if you have a local distillery next to you, or if you uh, are a fan of a distillery across the country, let us know. Send that into feedback as well at thebrewingnetwork.com. Not feedback as well, but, you know, feedback. And uh, we'll book them on the show. And so we can talk. And if you want questions, you can send in questions. We usually have a live chat room, too. So if you can go to thebrewingnetwork.com, you can see, you can listen live. You can listen to our other shows about home brewing and craft beer. But this one is specifically for you spirits drinkers because Warren and I are big fans. And we're probably the only ones here <laughs> that really like it. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's so fascinating. And, and, and like, you know, you just kind of heard with Brian there, there's a, a, a ton of places to go with it. There's a huge place to go with spirits. Just, yeah. You don't have to just do the core things and everything's fine. Have fun with it. Yeah. And if you want a chance to listen to us live, follow us uh, at The Brewing Network. On social media, we typically give you a couple hours warning as I think to when we're going live. I think it's at Brewing Network. At Brewing know. Network. But you'll, you'll find it. Right. You just look up the Brewing Network social media. It'll be all over there. Yeah. Or it's on the website. Who knows? Anyway, uh, Warren, thank you very much. Thank, uh, thank you. Thank you, of course, to Brian from Lost Spirits uh, for sending this lovely bottle of booze that I'm going to take home. Warren and I might actually just fight over it, but, uh, you know, who knows? I'll arm wrestle you. Yeah. Anyway, thanks a lot, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.